Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 47, Mr. Roberts. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Before we get started, just a few follow-up housekeeping notes. First, we have a new Instagram page. You can find us either at the handle at gmote, G-M-O-A-T podcast, or find us under the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast on Instagram. Second, if you have not signed up for our email list each week when a new episode is released, please either subscribe on one of our connected links in the show notes or email us directly at greatest all time movie podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Again, that's greatest all time movie podcast at gmail.com. Third, I have mentioned it before, but you can follow along with each episode, see each individual score breakdown on an individual movie, or find the whole list of movies in their rankings so far by clicking either of the links I embed in each of the show notes on every episode. If you simply click on the episode in your streaming service, they are right there for you. That's all there is to it. So, Dad, are you ready to discuss Mr. Roberts? I am. As we do each week, let's jump to a basic plot summary and recognition. Mr. Roberts is a bittersweet film about a supply officer aboard a cargo ship during World War II who yearns for a transfer into a combat zone, but is thus thwarted by the ship's captain, a petty tyrant. Forced to endure various humiliations in exchange for privileges, the crew engages in minor acts of resistance and looks to Mr. Roberts for inspiration and moral support, based on the hit Broadway play. This was nominated for Best Picture and Best Sound, and it won for Best Supporting Actor for Jack Lemmon. So, what is your relationship to this film, Dad? This was your suggestion. Yes, uh, of course, as many of the films are that we start uh, or discuss on here, my relationship to this movie is based on my dad. It was on... It was one of these movies that, you know, was on a weekend or late night or something like that, where it's the late night movie or something back in the mid to late 70s. And he started watching it and I sat down and watched it with him and was amazed by the number of big stars that were in it. And he and I watched it and talked about it periodically, which if if I have not mentioned already, usually my dad's dis, uh, point of discussion consisted of basically three sentences during a two-hour movie. But overall, uh, that's how we kind of bonded together. And so we watched this film together. He laughed a lot. He remembered this film from his uh, teenage years, and that's my relationship. So if you guys haven't figured out by now, Ronnie Duncan is actually my grandfather's name, and so this is now kind of a tribute to him being as... I think a lot of the movies we've talked about have some sort of relationship through him, much in the same way that I experience a lot of movies through you. So uh, just to fill in, if you have not gotten that so far as the audience, but I'd never really heard of this movie until you suggested it. And it's kind of surprising to me, given the level of star power that's in this movie. Well, when this movie came out, it was a huge, um, a, a huge deal because, well, the Broadway play, Henry Henry Fonda is always considered to be a movie star, but Henry Fonda preferred live plays. He much preferred being on Broadway and performing in theater than he did in movies because of the interaction that goes on between an actor and the and the audience. So this was a play that was uh, something that he had done on Broadway and had, I think, either been nominated or won a Tony for. 
Um, when he first went to Hollywood, there was a group of people that lived together that were like friends. Uh, Leland Hayward was one of those friends of his who was the producer of this film and who was involved in the actual screenplay. So there's a strong tie that dates back into the 1930s with Fonda in this film and with the people involved in it. So it makes sense overall. This is a question I've never really struggled with, and it's our next one that we usually discuss and what the movie is about. But I understand it from a plot senses, but what what is it really about? I, I'm having a, a issue with that. Maybe you could give me your insight. Okay. Well, I come at this as a second generation because, or actually third generation, because my grandfather's age was during World War II. And my dad uh, was born in 41, so he, or exceptionally, excuse me, 1940, so he grew up during the war but didn't participate. Really what this was about, every man who lived or who was of service age during the war had this personal struggle of whether they should or shouldn't serve and to the extent that they should serve. They should whether they should or shouldn't put themselves in harm's way, and whether when the war was over, you look back and go, "I really took the the easy way out versus um, trying to actually accomplish something or to put myself into a position where uh, I had to fend for myself and see what my medal was," and that's what this film's about. Henry Fonda's biggest driving point is is he felt he needed to serve and risk his life in order to feel like he accomplished something during the war. Even though he was probably, from everything in the film, the best procurement or distribution or how um, officer available, you know, he did a great job of, of disseminating materials. But he just didn't feel that was enough. And every man at some point goes through his life feeling like, well, what have I or what I've done or my chosen path or my chosen career, is this really what I was intended to do or should I have have stressed myself? Should I have tried to seek more and done more with my skill set and my life than what I accomplished? That's what the film's about. I suppose if I were to really think about it in the way that you're suggesting, it brings to mind, and maybe this is too high concept, but I I suppose if you're listening to this show, you're bearing with our high-mindedness that we kind of uh, are way too uh, self-important anyway. But Plato's Republic. And what I mean by that is everybody has their role within the greater cause. Some are made to be leaders, some are made to be followers, some are made to be logistics. And that maybe it's a appreciation for those that serve in a different capacity, uh, teaching that there were many ways to serve, and also an appreciation for those that may not have been on the front lines but had just as much a hand in the success of the American war effort. You know, when you're talking about this, and I'm a I'm a big historian personally. I, I do a lot of study 
write, et cetera, about history and military history and specifics, or specifically, I should say. And part of that concept is, is that when you're that type of person, you put yourself into positions um, since we have a volunteer army, you know, for example, I'm a big person who's involved in the study of the Civil War, and you think about if I were a uh, person who would volunteer for the Civil War, where would I be? You know, and logistics is part of the process because I just seem to have a talent for logistics. And, you know, in this particular case, you know, Hollywood, for example, um, there were a ton of celebrities who had to make a decision because the studios were were clamoring trying to get stars exempted from military service so that they could continue to make films because uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was really cognizant of trying to keep the home front as upbeat as possible, and so he wanted to continue to see films being made because it made a difference in morale for the public at home. So, you know, John Wayne never served, never even was in the military, even though he played military personnel. It was an actual rift between he and John Ford, who John Ford had volunteered to film combat, the director of this film, as a matter of fact, including footage that's considered some of the seminal uh, military footage of the Battle of Midway. And Ford commented and would would uh, speak uh, with some level of uh, contempt towards John Wayne of never having actually served. Henry Fonda did not serve, whereas probably his best friend in Hollywood, James Stewart, served. And not only did James Stewart serve, he became a pilot and, in fact, ran, I believe, 50 bombing missions think flying B-17s over Europe, which if you managed to fly a B-17 and got 50 sorties in, you know, you were, that was rare that you survived. So this film really is not just a, a, a composite of what life was like in general, but I think it kind of reflected what the situation was with Hollywood sorting itself out as to who served and who didn't. I'm glad that you mentioned that. It kind of allows us some transitional space. Uh, John Ford and his relationship to this movie and also his level of cantankerousness. Uh, Simply because if you do any minimal amount of research, there isn't a ton on this movie, but it is known for one specific thing. This was the seventh movie between John Ford and Henry Fonda. It was also their last because midway through, because of the dis- or the disagreement they had on how Fonda should play Mr. Roberts, famously, John Ford hit him in the jaw and then uh, left the film midway through. So this film actually has two directors. So for two stalwarts of the film industry to have that level of notoriety to this one, it's the only thing that is notable about this film other than the role Jack Lemmon played. And that's where I'm going to transition because he is my nominee for best performance as Ensign Pulver. This was the first major role of his career. He'd actually tried out for the Broadway play and not been cast. 
And so he didn't think he would be cast by Ford when they did the movie or decided to put this together, but he was in many ways. And Ford actually took an interest level in Jack Lemmon in order to do this. So I, I find it fascinating that he ultimately ends up not only winning the Best Supporting Actor for this, his first uh, not only nomination for an Oscar, but his first win in what ends up being a big career, but that it has uh, so many tail lines going forward. I mean, this is 1955. This is right before Lemon is about to launch in a couple of the films that we have uh, previously discussed, one that we did a direct episode on, some like It Hot from 59, but also The Apartment from 1960, and then a few other films that he has a fairly long history, and this is kind of what got him started. So who is your best performer? I had Henry Fonda, simply because Fonda was by far the glue which held the 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 whole cast together. He was the center. He had to play parts of being both condescending to some extent, uh, had to be um, uh, contrite at other times. He had to be angry, but he couldn't overdo it. This, this is a part that could have been overacted so easily, but wasn't. It, it, it kind of is almost like if you were to from everything you know about Henry Fonda or don't know about Henry Fonda, this film could very well be considered like if you were to create a dream role for him, this was it. I had some complicated feelings on Fonda in this. He is in a movie that I love so much and pops off so well in, in 12 Angry Men, where He's got this certain energy and, I don't know, it's not quite desperation, but conviction. The way he plays Juror 8 in that movie. And similarly, you see that in something like The Grapes of Wrath when he's Tom Joad. That there's a certain energy and conviction he has that I just didn't see in this, this movie. And maybe that's the difference from the Broadway version to maybe the disagreement he had with Ford and ultimately what led to the deterioration of their relationship. I just, that there's some weird quality to it that, that I can't put my finger on. I had, it, it doesn't seem to be the Fonda role that I know it could have been. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I think you're reading more into it than you should, which is Fonda Fonda was, as most actors, are fairly chameleon-like. And you you, uh, gave me, or you and your sisters gave me a book for Christmas a few years ago, Hank and Jim, which was a story or a book written by a Hollywood uh, historian about the relationship and the history of Henry Fonda and and James Stewart. And when you read the book and you understand who Henry Fonda was and what he was and what he wasn't, you get a much different feel for him and his acting. He would rise to the part when it was necessary. And really, in this film and in the play itself, I'm sure... He didn't have to be the hero. He didn't have to be the guy with the conviction. What he was was is he was the common denominator. 
everybody relied on him to understand what the purpose was. And so to that extent, he was the foundation and he played it like he was the foundation. Not that he was a big hero or that he could have done something this or he should have done this, you know, or whatever. It was, I'm at the, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I'm I'm the three. And everybody else peaks and they go up to a nine and they're down to a negative two and they're up. No, I'm the guy who's the level one on this ship who is playing the part or playing the part of the common person that everybody looks to even James Cagney as the captain is looking to him not necessarily for guidance but for steadiness of running the ship because Cagney wasn't and that's the part that was going on I don't know for the four primary star actors and their placement within this film I'm just going to say I would have expected Fonda to be a bigger personality in this movie, and he was the most understated of the four. Maybe that that's where my, my disappointment is, is that he just was not nearly the same personality that I would come to expect from him. And again, this was my first time seeing it, but I thought he got outdone by the other three primary stars. So that actually leads me to my nomination for Best Secondary Performance. And I said this to you because I had to watch this in stops and starts uh, due to my schedule currently. But uh, James Cagney, I, uh, <laughs> this is a guy that I, I was not familiar with until really this year. I don't think I'd seen a Cagney movie until 2020. And with every Cagney movie I seem to see, the more I come to just enjoy him incredibly. It's kind of this odd relationship where he just appeals to me in this this odd way, and I cannot put my finger on it. But he completely overacts Captain Morton in the best way possible. It, he is so overanimated, so over the top that it becomes a caricature and that's what you need as the antagonist of this film because it's supposed to be comedic i don't know to me he just did a wonderful job in creating a great foil for the rest that didn't become the central part of the movie but also had this aura over the rest of the play or all of the action that was going on without it being too heavy my best secondary performance was also Cagney um, because he really you have to understand this is to some extent mutiny on the bounty made into a comedy and yeah I can see that um, so Cagney was playing Captain Bly, and that's what the part was. Every person I've ever talked to, and I've had family members, my dad, and I'll relay this story. I, I have a good or a friend that you know very well who lives in the village that we do who tells these stories. Everybody who's been in the military has some story about some character from their experience in the military who is just over the top. 
you know, my dad always talks about all these people like he talks about or used to talk about it, the drill sergeant he had when he was at basic at Camp, I believe, Camp Pendleton. And then um, he would also talk about guys that was in his unit, like his staff sergeant's name was Wiley, and he referred to it as a Wiley bath, which the guy never showered. He just always felt it was necessary to just wash off his armpits and his neck in the sink. And that's what he that's what they started calling. So every guy who's been in the military relates to some extent with Cagney because they've all experienced him and they've all lived through and they've been those guys who were on that ship, whether it was a ship or a platoon or stationed on a on an island, wherever. They all relate because there's some aspect of their history where this has happened and they can understand these people. One of the things I forgot to mention is how very well layered the character seems to be in Cagney's portrayal of it. Now, part of that has to do with the script, that there's that one scene which you really get his motivational set. But I think Cagney was the right person to play that role because you can really see him being that ordinary guy who feels jilted by all of the college boys all the time that are giving him trouble. And so it you fully understand his level of animosity toward Henry Fonda in that moment. And I, I think because of that, it just enhances that character that much more. I, I'm sorry I didn't mention it before. That being said, and we'll move into Charismatic, another great find of, of mine for 2020, though, along with Cagney, has been William Powell, and he is my nominee for Most Charismatic. I don't know what it is about him. He's just got this great engagement. It's only the second film of his I've seen this year, and it, he's from another movie that I guarantee, unless you're a crazy person like me who's decided that they're going to watch every best picture winner of all time who would ever go back and watch the great Ziegfeld from like <laughs> 1937 or 1938 yeah. but it's the only other movie of his i saw and really the only reason to watch it is for william powell but he does this great wily old coot as doc that is uh, a great foil and also some of the heart of the movie. And I, I don't know why, but he's just, every time he's in a scene, he's just kind of lovable. I, I, I don't know. He's the conscience of the film. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, if you want to follow William Powell, he and Myrna Loy did a whole series of films in the late 40s called The Thin Man. They were remade later on with Peter Lawford and such. But they're, they're just wonderful little detective films. And, uh, you know, they're just classic and they're intelligent and they don't insult you as far as giving clues, you know, like, you know, where a lot of whodunit films will be like, they'll show it and they'll go, here's the tip, here's the tip, and they'll wave their hands and hear the... No, they're they're very good. They're very well done, and so William Paul has always been somebody that I've enjoyed and thought has done a very good job. And as he aged, he took on these roles and did them very well. And I agree that he is a great 
piece in this film. So who is your most charismatic? Jack Lemmon, because it is clear that Jack Lemmon was going to be a star after you've watched this film. He's going to be the guy that's the borderline neurotic who's always going to be right on the cusp. The The character he plays in this ends up being the character to some extent that he is in Some Like It Hot. It's the same character to some extent that he was in The Apartment. You know, it, it became the epitome of what was Jack Lemon, which is there's just a certain aspect where he's constantly fighting against himself and, you know, what he should do, shouldn't do. And you can watch the the neuroticism or the, the neuroses that he has internally. He has a knack for being able to present it without being maudlin or in the film. You can see the internal struggle he has on things, what he should do versus what he wants to do. And that becomes like the epitome of the films that he has throughout the 1950s, 60s, and even into the early 70s. This is one of the reasons that why I think actors are way too afraid of being typecast. There are no great actors with range. There are actors playing the same character going through different circumstances. I mean, Tom Hanks is the same in just about every movie he does. He's just in a lot of different circumstances because he's the most average actor that we could possibly get in order to insert into how many different movies. We've said this about Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is just playing degrees of different versions of himself. And I think in the same way that we found the character that Jack Lemmon best did in this type of role, but he's not that different from, or or, excuse me, Ensign Pulver is not that much different than Felix Unger. And I understand. And and with Tom Hanks and with James Stewart, who are a lot of times uh, lined up being virtually the same, you can look at them as actors and feel like, you know, they're my next door neighbor or they're my friend Joe or they're um, my uncle George. And, and there's a certain aspect or quality about them that they seem to be a level of diffidence that, you know, no matter what goes on around them, they always react the same way. Jack Lemon seemed to always thrive in films where he was put into a position where he was put upon and he had to make these weird decisions about where things were going to be or what's going to happen. John Wayne always was the basically the same character. And you've mentioned Jack Nicholson the same way. They're the same, you know, basic character. To some extent, you create a persona and that persona is what ends up becoming part of you and why you're cast in these roles. So let's go to best scene. Uh, Did you have a first nominee? I'm going to just nominate the very first scene, which is Henry Fonda seeing the the battle um, task force in the distance and watching it travel because it kind of set the stage for where things should be and what was going to happen through the course of the film. That's not a bad one. All right. Next scene for you. Uh, one of the scenes I really enjoyed was when the uh, guys were getting sure liberty 
and all the shenanigans that were going on and them coming back and going back and back and forth drunk and what was going on. And if you are my age and you remember TV back into the 70s, a very young Martin Milner who was on uh, Adam 12, a TV show from the early 70s, uh, played a shore patrol guard at that time. And, uh, you know, it's funny. And I think that scene played to those who had been in the military and had served in World War II and had experienced being under constant strain and then had an opportunity to blow off steam and the level of steam that you actually blew off. Certainly. I think that scene worked at a lot of different levels. When it comes to the comedic aspect of all of the antics, that were going on at that point. Uh, you talk about what was what was it exactly that uh, they threw somebody and like a desk through a window of the commander of the island or, or something to that extent. I I don't yeah, remember something to that effect. I, I don't remember it completely, but uh, they you know obviously the one guy drives his motorcycle completely off the dock and then tries to go back in after it after he fishes himself out of the water and I mean yes. or even down to the level of the guys being delivered to dock and they're supposed to be in trouble and oh yeah I've checked you out and you're yeah you're okay go ahead go back out and I mean for I, I think that is a pivotal scene for all of the other dramatic action involving Roberts because you really get a sense of the motivation he has for making the deal with Captain Morton. And and that's going to be my next scene nominee. So the, the deal between Roberts and Morton is probably the pivot scene of the movie. So you, you have the entire first act built into him seeking privileges or some way of letting off steam letting these guys go ashore to kind of let loose they've only been able to do so much up to that point and they're kind of getting this i don't know what what would you call it pent-up energy i'm trying to look for the uh, right word for it what's cabin fever that's what i was thinking of it's kind of a a cabin fever-esque obviously in a different circumstance and what his motivation is, because he's trying to think of all the guys that are technically under his command, where you have it in the complete opposite. And this is where the antagonistic versus protagonistic elements of the film really take shape, where it's Morton versus Roberts. It's Fonda versus Cagney. And you really get the sharp edge of what this relationship is. Morton needs... Fonda in order to promote himself, in order to continue to rise above and be able to say, I made myself into something when everybody thought I was going to be nothing. You're helping me accomplish that. And it's been kind of understated until that point where it's just so thrust in your face in this point of the film, ultimately in the deal that they make, because Roberts is self-sacrificing enough to say, this is too much. This is a bridge too far. You can't do this to them. I will put myself on the line for the things that I want in order to allow this privilege for my guys, because that's more important in the end. One of the things I've picked up after watching the film again is the 
you know, there's the old laughable line, the wink, wink, nod, nod, say no more from Monty Python, which is if there's something going on here that you really can't say but you can imply, I can envision a lot of guys taking their wives, girlfriends, families even to watch this film and to some extent, because, you know, the number of people and family members, people we've known who have come back from World War II and never talked about their experiences, this gave them an opportunity to see something of what was actually going on without it being the horrific aspect of it. It was kind of like this exemplifies what happened when, you know, you're under constant stress for days, months, even more than a year, and then you have an opportunity to not be and how you react. And it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, kind of like, you know, the inside joke, you know, you tell your wife, this is kind of like what happened when, you know, the the foot got let off the pedal. And in this particular case, you look at the relationship between Morton being Cagney and, and Roberts being Fonda, and you see what took place and what individuals understood and what needed to be done because they had a grasp of what combat or even being even quasi in combat entailed and you understood what you needed to do in order to make men feel capable of continuing in their role well the other thing and it just kind of popped into my head here is the explicitness that ford creates or maybe i guess it's more in the screenwriting than in in the direction the difference in styles and leadership. There's self-serving leadership to a very extreme extent in Morton. And then there's the altruistic leadership of Roberts. And you get that completely stark contrast in that moment. So what is your next nominee? Uh, The climactic scene, which is the letters to Pulver. I'm involved in a men's group and, you know, I'm one of the younger of the group. They're all in their 60s. I'm 57. And they kept telling me how you would become more and more sentimental as you got older. And, you know, the climactic scene of Pulver reading letters, I didn't remember that aspect of the film. And when it happened, it just hit me and I'm sitting here kind of... You know, uh, spoiler alert for a film that we mentioned at 60 the top. some years old, you know, or Roberts dies in a kamikaze attack. And, uh, you know, the fact that all of the crew is emotionally distraught because this guy who they looked up to is now dead, who's, you know, sought out to, to put himself in harm's way to feel like he actually contributed to the war effort actually died as a result of it. And uh, I just, I I found that scene to be very moving. Well, I think you're forgetting the biggest aspect that I took away from it. A lot of the film has been building for Lemon to put himself in a situation of where he's looking for the approval and sign-off of Roberts, and he kind of gets it toward the end of the film with the whole firecracker scene, which 
I'm not nominating, but I mean, it's a it's a great funny scene, uh, especially with the way they did the whole piece. But ultimately, in that moment, he just reacts in the way that he takes up the leadership. It's now his role to become Roberts in the eyes of the crew, and he essentially rises above the level or the criticisms that Roberts has placed upon him and you see that he genuinely had an effect in leader leading these people to become the people they needed to be. It, it's the growth of that character that makes that scene for me. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that and I can see that. I'll do the kind of two scenes-ish before that. So there's a, a point where there ultimately is the disagreement where Cagney ends up. I, I They never really say if it's like a heart attack or I, I'm not really sure, but he ends up basically having an anger stroke more or less. But it's when Roberts throws the palm tree overboard and he's insulted essentially the honor of the ship that this reward that he or that Morton received has now been uh, abandoned more or less. And you finally get the revealing that of the deal that was made because it's done over the loudspeaker and all of these guys who have now pent up this animosity at Roberts, the guy they used to fondly look up to the guy that represented their true leader. They, realize the amount of sacrifice he did in order to allow them the privileges the uh, to survive out in their situation what he did to lay himself on the line for his own uh desires in order to get them to that point and then that leads into the scene that i'm really nominating and that's doc revealing the crew's forgery the fact that there's a participation or basically a contest to figure out which of them is the best forger of the captain's signature. Well, <laughs> is it's a memorable yeah. moment in the film that's also incredibly emotional because now the crew is putting themselves also at risk to help their leader. And I think that's the the definition of service leadership is something that I think a lot of people strive for, but most people don't have a ready example of. This is one that kind of spoke to me as maybe a model of leadership that I would like to be. Yeah, I can understand exactly what you're talking about, which is really it's, you know, you put yourself into a position where you're leading and then ultimately the people you're leading end up sacrificing themselves for your ultimate good. And you have a hard time, and I think Fonda in the film, as well as the the character, had a hard time grasping why the crew would put themselves in that position to help him. You know, he he, which exemplified exactly why you know the fact that he didn't do this because he wanted to be a hero. He did it because he felt that's what was necessary, and the crew rewarded him for his efforts even though he didn't necessarily appreciate it or understand it. All right. Did you have another scene yet? No. Well, I mean, there are some that you could do, because actually when I'm looking back on it, 
you know, every aspect of this film had a scene of some value or something that I found interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I think I covered the scenes that I thought were the most important. I think so, too, but I'm going to highlight one more, and it, it's probably my favorite scene in this one. Uh, so the firecracker would be top of the comedic chart, but I think this scene kind of tops it, and I thought, oh, this is such a great scene when they were doing it. I, I think it's beautifully written. It's just classic comedy for cinema, at least in, in this era of things, and it's done between three just absolute engaging stars that are so charismatic in the moment of all of this. And I'm going to refer to this as making Navy bourbon. Oh, yes. Yes, the way they have to go no, about it. Oh, excuse scotch. me, scotch. My bad, my bad. Yes, yeah. making Navy scotch. <laughs> and the fact that they keep adding to it, it's not just that like they're trying to pass off one layer. No, the, the the amount of steps that they take individually and they just keep building and building and it's one more thing and it's one more thing and it's one more thing until finally you get, to, damn, we can pass this off. They won't know the difference. And it, all of that. I, I'm not going to spoil the whole scene for everybody, but I, I thought that was one of the better scenes of the movie and it, it is uh, probably my favorite out of this. So, uh, for you, out of those that we've talked about, what is the best scene? Um, ultimately, I think the best scene is the climactic scene, which is the very end. Because, to me, that became the epitome of what the film ultimately led to, which is Robert's death and the disclosure in the letters to Pulver. All right, I'm going to go with the scene that I talked about, and it's... Doc revealing the crew's forgery because I think there is such a climactic value in the same way that you get it from the letters. I think there's a little bit more that I get from an emotional standpoint from Doc basically revealing to Roberts what he means to the crew. Because I think if you want to know how somebody feels, show me how they act or they respond. That is more indicative to someone's feelings than anything they could ever say. And I think their self-sacrifice in that moment and the way it goes about it to ultimately give Roberts the same thing that the one thing he wants most in the same way that they wanted the one thing to go ashore was their, their biggest desire generally. I don't know about individually, but generally. I think in that moment is a great statement of how they feel about him and how they've responded to his leadership. And and for me, that's that's something for somebody that me personally, I've strived towards leadership positions. It would how, be how I would want to be seen by those I was in leadership over or those I was trying to lead. Let's say that. I already gave you my favorite scene. What was yours? My favorite scene ultimately is the shore leave. Just because the, the, just the absolute mania that's going on while that's happening. It, it just, it, it's the epitome of what men or any 
soldier, sailor, marine, whatever, has to endure. If And anybody who's in a stressful position, you know, you have to have that opportunity to just blow off steam, more or less, whether that's what you call it or the fact that you have to be able to do something that's completely different from what you do ultimately is the the value you have in your life because you can only be vigilant you can only be stoic you can only be conscious of ultimate levels of consciousness so long before you ultimately have to do something that's completely different or you lose your sanity all right that takes us into most indelible moment for me I took a second. I, I put my notes together a couple of days after I'd watched the film. If there's any one thing, and it's odd because it's not a part of any of the moments we've talked about necessarily, but I think it ends to the, or is the beginning of the concluding action of the play and or movie. And it's Robert's throwing the palm tree into the ocean. I, I don't know why that sticks out for me, but that's act and what it essentially sets off ends up becoming the thing that's just seared into my mind for me it was the um the scene with uh Kegney and Fonda where they make the deal of what it's going to take in order to get the crew liberty because you know I've had a lot of opportunities to be in leadership positions through my life, you know, ultimately, sometimes you just reach a position where if you're going to be a leader, you have to make sacrifices, you have to do things that you kind of just regret, but you know that in order to be a leader and to take care of the people who are following you, you have to compromise, even though it may feel like you need to take a shower um, afterwards. It's just part of the process. And to me, that was an indelible moment that what Fonda had to do in order to basically save the crew. Okay, that is a good point to take a break. We will be right back. Welcome back. Let's jump into best lines. What do you have first up, Dad? The lions seemed always in this film play off other lines so it's not like you can give the one line although um here uh doug roberts we've got nothing to do with the the war maybe that's why we're on this ship because we're not good enough to fight because our glands don't secrete enough adrenaline or our great grandmothers were afraid of the dark or something i think that could be the summation line of at least roberts's uh character arc or at least motivation to get into the the final point so i I guess that is significant but i would agree with you that a lot of this movie if you're gonna talk about lines is done through dialogue so my first nominee is right after ensign pulver asks roberts what he thinks of him and I, i think this is significant because frankly the most important character in the movie is not well, at least to me, is not Roberts. It is Pulver. Frank, I like you. There's no getting around the fact that you're a real likable guy. Yeah, yeah. 
But, but what? Well, I also think you're the most hapless, lazy, disorganized, and, in general, the most lecherous person I've ever known in my life. I am not. You're not what? I'm not disorganized, for one thing. Have you ever in your life finished one thing you started out to do? You sleep 16 hours a day. You pretend you want me to improve your mind. You've never finished one book I've given you to read. I finished God's Little Acre, Doug Boy. I didn't give you that. He's been reading God's Little Acre for over a year now. He's underlined every erotic passage and added exclamation points. And after a certain pornographic climax, he inserted the words, well written. Yes. So I will go actually next because I think it's the full character arc. It's where you get that picture of what Pulver is. You've been built up that he's kind of this screwball, the guy that is, uh, as they put it, lecherous, uh, lazy, but also kind of the guy who never stands up. He's never taken initiative to do anything. Obviously, you get that from the firecracker scene or the marbles, which I didn't, I'm not going to nominate here, but, and I think this is the end of his character arc because after this, uh, I think there's a significant line where Roberts essentially dares Pulver that it's never going to be the you, you as the guy to take the leadership role. You're never going to be the one that who's self-sacrificing or the one who does it some type of initiative and then takes the responsibility for it. And ultimately, that leads to that final moment of Pulver taking the palm tree again, throwing it overboard, and finally, Captain, it is I, Ensign Pulver, and I just threw your stinking palm tree overboard. Now, what's all this crowd about no movie tonight? And then, you know, fade to black. It, it's not necessarily the line itself, but it's the way that the lines were provided that made a difference to me. It's a very short line, but it's really kind of like uh, the epitome of the uh, Roberts-Captain Morton relationship. Captain, you told me, never mind what I told you. I'm telling you. Yeah. I, I can definitely see it, and frankly, it's playing into that same caricature that I, I said of Cagney, the way he plays the antagonist, but yet undermines himself and thus uh, creates such a comedic antagonist at the same time. I, I that's, that's one to highlight if you can pull one that kind of expresses Cagney, I guess, without getting a, a I guess, more of a scene version of that if there's one line to pull out. Uh, I'm The last one I had on my list, though, is the letter to either was Doc or was Pulver. And I think, if anything, this is the climactic moment of the, the movie. I mean, there are several of them, but this is really that final death nail that kicks off the, the line that I mentioned just a minute ago. And it's Roberts's letter. I'm in the war at last, Doc. I've caught up with the task force that passed me by. I'm glad to be here. I had to be here, I guess. But I'm thinking now of you, Doc, and you, Frank, and Dolan, and Dowdy, and Insigna, and every everyone else on that bucket. All the guys everywhere who sail from tedium to apathy and back again. 
with an occasional side trip to Monotony. This is a crew or a tough crew on here, and they had a wonderful battle record. But I've discovered, Doc, that the unseen enemy of this war is the boredom that eventually becomes a faith, and therefore a terrible sort of suicide. And I now know that the ones who refuse to surrender to it are the strongest of all. I think there are so many deeper levels. I, I've literally reread this one back at least a dozen times since I was done with the movie because that I, I literally thought of that multiple times in that last moment. I, I almost backed up. I didn't, but I because I wanted to get it the way it was delivered. A couple of different times, maybe I should have went and rewatched that one moment because of how it was read. But for whatever reason, that seems to have, if anything, the final summation on this movie and to what it was about. Which is why I had so much trouble figuring out the question of what this movie was about. Because I'm still digesting this line. I have um, a series of lines, actually. Uh, Doug Roberts, how did you get in the Navy? How did you get on our side? Oh, you ignorant, uh, arrogant, ambitious, keeping 60 men in prison because you got a palm tree for the work they did. I don't know which I hate worse. You are that other malignant growth that stands outside the door. Ah, you, you stinking little... How did you ever get command of a ship? I realize in wartime they have to scrape the bottom of the barrel, but where do they ever scrape you up through? There's one thing left for you, mister, a general court-martial. That suits me fine. Court-martial me. I've got it. Or you've got it. Uh, I've got it, or I'm asking for it. If I can't get transferred, I, uh, I'll get court-martialed off. I'm fed up. You need a witness. Call your messenger. I'll say it all over again in front of him. Go on, call him. You want me to call him? No, you're a smart boy, Roberts. I know how to take care of smart boys. I hate you, got your guts, you smart college guys. I've seen your kind around since I was uh, 10 years old, working as a busboy. Oh, busboy, it seems my friend is thrown up on the table. Clean up your mess, or that mess there, that busboy, and then... Uh, you know, when I went to sea as a steward, people poked you, at you and with umbrellas. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Careful with that luggage, boy. I took it. I took it for years. But I, I, I don't have to take it anymore. There's a war on, and I'm captain of this vessel. And now you can take it for a change. The worst thing I can do to you is to keep you right here, mister. And that's where you're going to stay. Now get out. It's probably the biggest moment of delivered dialogue where you get a real sense of the characters. It's what we were talking about earlier when we we get that stark contrast in leadership and what their true characters are in this story. I think it's too much dialogue for any one single line, but it is important to highlight what it epitomizes, you know, one of the films that's near the top of our list is uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And you think about that. You have a, a common average guy who um, ends up losing his hands in that film. You have another guy who's somewhat 
from a lower class family, and then you have a guy who's a banker, and they all end up because of the war becoming friends because of common experiences. And ultimately, that's what war involves, is it puts people from all levels of socioeconomic status and thrusts them into situations they're not necessarily accustomed to. And so you have Roberts, who's the college-educated person, versus the guy who's the merchant marine in Morton, who's now in command of this ship. And really, this is an uh, a exemplification of what war was, which is blowing up classes and ec- or ec- economic socio strata and putting everybody on equal footing and then seeing who rose to the top by merit. And so you have in these films so many opportunities where it's the guy who's the average, you know, Joe uh, driving cab in Brooklyn versus the guy who's the college professor at some, you know, mid- Midwestern university and the guy who's um, got who comes from old money and they're all thrown together. And this dialogue, to some extent, shows exactly that classification and the the eruption. <laughs> disassociation of that classification it's interesting that we highlight this as a extremely fortunate period of american history or one that we kind of lionize and part of that has to do with how many people were forced together in unusual circumstances whereas we've kind of in a modern sense segregated ourselves and i think to a certain extent, that's led to the polarization that we've seen societally. So, are you ready to jump into our Stanley rubric? Yes, I am. So, what did you have down for Legacy? This is a film that's often forgot. I had a seven for that reason. I enjoy the film, and I have a feeling that if... if People actually sat down and watched it with their fam or their family or friends. They would find an appreciation for it, and it would probably rise. But I'm going to give it a seven for that reason. So we're going to be very different on this one. Part of the reason that I am giving this as low a score as I am is I think we needed to open up a larger parameter as to what the range should be for this movie. Well, not this movie, but just movies in general. We've had a lot of ones that have a lot of notoriety and name recognition and certain legacy attached to them. This one I've never heard of. When you look or you Google it, uh, the TCM clips that they do the introductions and the ending pieces for that you can find anywhere only talked about two things. Jack Lemmon winning his Oscar and the feud between Ford and Fonda. And there's like seven clips, and all of them basically say one of those two things. So this movie isn't even remembered among the people that are supposed to be really highlighting classic films. And while I really enjoyed this movie, and I'm glad that you put it on our list, it's not something that 
has ever come up in any conversation. You can barely find materials on it. There's no major works done about it. It's forgotten. So I gave it a two and a half. Wow. Okay. Well, (laughs) no, I understand your point, but I I think we need, I need to broaden the definition because if we, everything is a seven or an eight or a nine, then there's nothing below a five. And I'm not trying to do that to this movie because, again, I enjoyed it. But this is nothing that, unless you're even, or how to put it, unless you're somebody with your dad or that this came out while you were this age or whatever that, you know, maybe my grandparents might have heard of this movie, but I certainly did not. And it's not a movie that ever comes up. Well, your grandparents had heard of it because it was a conversation at dinner tonight before we we uh, recorded. So that leaves us with a 4.75. And uh, again, I think we needed to create a broader stretch. So All impact right. significance. I went with a 6. I think this was, if it had a moment, it was bigger in the moment. And here's the part... Maybe I was a little too rough in the legacy, but I'm going to give it this level of impact. It broke down one of the long-standing film relationships between Ford and Fonda. It gave us the first big role and the first Oscar for Jack Lemmon, who I think is probably one of the more underrated actors just ever, period. I've always enjoyed him in whatever I've seen him do. And I, I wish he had done stuff that was more notable, uh, other than the few that either we've covered or are going to cover. As far as that, it was also a decent box office draw. So I gave it a six. I went 5.5, actually, on this, because of the fact that there were so many war films that came out. This came out about the same time as... Uh, the Kane Mutiny, and a bunch of things. And, again, I, I made mention of this. There were so many guys who fought during the war who did not want to discuss the war, but they wanted to share with their family and their wives what the war was like and what their experiences were without it necessarily being fearful and frightening and and maudlin and all this stuff and so they would look for the opportunities to present it in more of an almost comedic fashion um and to that extent yes but there were so many films like this during that time frame that i had a hard time giving it any bigger chops than i did so they're four five point five That makes the average math pretty easy. It's a 5.75 between us. Novelty, I went with a 4. I don't think there is a ton that was different about this movie. I mean, we've had a lot of different plays that got turned into a movie, especially Broadway hits to this point. That's not particularly notable. As you mentioned, there were a ton of different war films. We had a lot of big stars. I guess if there was anything significantly novel, 
it's this is the war film about people who weren't involved in the action. That's the one hook I will land on. Every every John Wayne war film, every other John Ford war film, somebody's involved in some shooting or frontline action or something else that's going on. This is the one that I can notably think of that I, I guess other than maybe something like Mrs. Miniver, but that was more of a home front movie. This is the one where it's about something else going on with the war. I went with a 7.5 for this category because this is the only film I could think of that took the film or the, excuse me that took the war in more of a comedic fashion. Almost all the other war films were more serious. And this looked at the lighter side of what it was like when you didn't have to deal with constant fear of death. I think this opened the door for several other films that were later produced, uh, such as Operation Petticoat, and the wackiest ship in the na- or in the army and such that were in the late 50s, early 60s to that extent, it, it took a lighter side to what was really a very intense situation. So that's why I gave it a little higher uh, number. It's an interesting point, and probably I could come up on that one given the nature of that. Yeah, I'm going to readjust mine. I'm going to go six. So what was your number again? I had 7.5. Yeah, so that'll split the difference between us, and I think that's a 6.75. Because I I think there is something to be said from a genre change or a, a different tone that could be significant. One of the other ones that you did not say but that came to mind to me was Mikhail's Navy 2. Uh, that well, be in that. I, I was going to comment. I don't think without this film, you'd have had several television uh, shows in the 60s that were successful. McHale's Navy being one, the other being Hogan's Heroes, which is to take a lighter commit or comedic take on the war and the fallacy or the stupidity of war and, and to poke fun at it. Let's go to classicness. Now, this is the first time I've ever seen this movie, so it might be harder for me to appreciate all of the notes and how much they hit if I haven't watched this multiple times. Because I think the second time through, this might end up slightly different in the way I watch it, then uh, it would be the first time through. I think it's very effective the first time through, and you get all of the emotional down notes, but I don't know if it would hit you the same way the second, third, fourth time that you might see something like this. So from that standpoint, I think it might, because obviously I think the play wouldn't have been successful had it not been able to do that. But I'm not entirely certain. 
Now, as far as the other part of classicness that we've kind of layered onto this category, I don't have any real cringy moments to this. There isn't anything terribly out of place. The one thing you could say, and I'm kind of torn between it because it's a lighter, goofy moment, but it's the peeping Tom couple of scenes where they're spying on the girls. But outside of that, and maybe you could say like the really childish antics, which uh, frankly, there wouldn't be any college films that existed if they really harped on uh, the Night of Liberty that's from this film. I, I don't think you can take that too terribly seriously without kind of losing the forest for the trees. But I don't have too many problems from that. So if there were to be anything that I took points away from is I wonder what this movie would be the second or third time and whether the emotional moments would hit me in the same way. Maybe I'd have a greater appreciation, but I gave it an eight. I had to stop and think about this and, and consider it as far as classicness and such. And yes, you pointed the same things and it, it, it it's appropriate or fits for the genre or the era in which it was done. It's not something that you would necessarily agree should be in a film now, but back then, yeah, I can understand it. The problem I have with with the, this category is simply the fact that it's not a film that I necessarily, I saw it once, when, like I said, when I was a, a younger child, maybe in my early teens, and then watched it again one time, and then when the when we're looking at films from the 1950s this is one i said oh i haven't seen it i had actually even forgotten the ending of the film so to that extent i went with a 6.5 for that reason simply because of the overall impact it had on me over long longevity so that gives us a 7.25 between us, and I, I'm a little bit surprised you went lower than I did, but you seem to have the more nuanced opinion on some of that all the time. Uh, ultimately, I think this was a fairly easy one for me to put on the rewatchability scale. This is something that I didn't mind watching. It's got several charismatic, engaging stars. I enjoy all four of them in different ways, and I, I think this is something that oh yeah, this is a, a favorite that you can kind of just put on occasionally. It's not going to be terribly complicated or heavy to watch, so I think it's got a lightness to it. It may be a little bit overlong, uh, so I graded it down a half point for that one. I think it may be about 10 or 15 minutes that you probably could have cut out, but it's not terrible at just slightly over two hours, so I gave it a 6.5. I went with a straight seven um, simply because this is a film that, I mean, you and I are, are uh, cinemaphiles at this point. We, we like watching this stuff. And I, I will go through every Sunday afternoon during a lull in football or baseball, if it's the summer or basketball, whatever, hockey, whatever I watch on Sundays for sports. 
And we'll go through the list and see if there's things that I want to record to watch later. And this is one that is if, if I'm coming across a Turner Classic Movies and this is on, I'm going to go, oh, yeah, this would be kind of fun to watch with uh, your mother on a, on set or Friday or Saturday night when we're trying to just find something, you know, that we don't have to think too much because it's been a long week. And so I went with a seven for that. It's not like I'm going to go out of my way to go, oh, my God, we've got to own a copy of this so we can watch it every year. All right. So between us, that was uh, an average of 6.75 for rewatchability. So just to quickly recap, Legacy, 4.75. Impact Significance, 5.75. Novelty, 6.75. Classicness, 7.25. Rewatchability, 6.75. Audience score was an 84% for 8.4 points, giving us a final total of 39.65. All right, uh, for remaining questions, I didn't really have any. I think this movie kind of closed the loop pretty well. I guess if, if I were to ask anything, I might talk about the relationship between Fonda and Ford and why that ended up but i think these are two guys that if you understood the era and masculinity that sometimes when you get into a project and you are very convicted coming to blows really isn't as foreign a concept as nowadays it might be but that might be the only thing that i I really have well the book you gave me if you read it You'd understand the relationship between Ford and uh, Fonda and Ford and Ward Bond and Ford and John Wayne and such. Ford ran a basic, like a ship or a little boat that he took out of the harbor that was like a portable bar brothel. He had his group of cronies that he took on these that... uh, the testosterone or the testosterone and the bourbon was flying, and ultimately Ford had uh, ended up with fractured relationships with almost every person in which he took on that boat. It's just the nature of the circ- of the um, relationship and what took place. So I don't necessarily have that. My biggest question is: is if you're a, a sailor on that ship. And you have ultimately reached out to do what Mr. Roberts wanted that ultimately resulted in his death. Is there ever a point of guilt that you end up feeling? Boy, that is a good question. I I mean, you did it as an act of love. It was an altruistic act. It was some it was magnanimous gesture on their it, part it's to love. do that. But he ultimately died. So do you feel guilty because you did something that ultimately he wanted but resulted in his demise? If I were to draw any conclusions, you can kind of get it when uh, Doc has this moment where they're talking about whether to post which one because uh, there's the two letters the one that says that he's passed away and the other one where 
he, he's actually writing his thoughts and, you know, appreciating the crew, giving his two cents on uh, what he wants to be remembered for, that he's very proud of his palm tree medal or whatever it was. And yes. Doc ultimately contradicts that uh, we need to give the uh, proper award to the, or excuse me, we would need to post the letter that is uh, Roberts's thoughts, not the one where he passed, because you want to remember people for who they were, not their eventual circumstances. And so maybe if I were to draw a conclusion, it would be in that moment, but that that's a hard one to conceptualize. I, I think if it were me, I would probably feel some, but then again, I'm somebody who has a lot of guilt over a lot of things I probably shouldn't. So <laughs> I... I uh, yeah, okay. Well, I... I take personally things that most people necessarily wouldn't and kind of self-shame and that's that's it has way more to do with me as it as an individual than anything else and then there are stuff or excuse me then there are things that other people would be shameful of and i just push right past and so i i don't know but in this moment i i would feel a certain level of remorse but if i were to rationalize the situation ultimately it was a collective action of love and you were helping him live out his wish he died doing the thing he wanted to accomplish with his life and i think to a certain extent maybe you could make peace with that if you can at all just a little aside, and again for the listeners, you know, I talk about my dad, but my dad was an alcoholic, and my dad, though, quit drinking when I was five years old and never drank again from 1966 until he passed in 2007 of cancer. <clears throat> but still, when you're a child of an alcoholic, you have a certain element of feeling of responsibility towards people that you don't normally sh feel like you should be responsible for. And that was part of my adult reckoning to come to terms with the fact that I was not responsible for the well-being of my parents, that actually it was the other way around, and that I should not feel guilty. So to that extent, you know, being on that crew, and I guess that's what struck me, even to this day, and I'm sure part of what I do as a profession is because I have a certain feeling of responsibility, this altruistic view that I have to take care of people um, because that's what my responsibility is, even if I don't necessarily have that responsibility in actuality. And so to that extent, that's why I came up with this, because it would rack me with guilt through most of my entire life if I was an active participant in trying to get Roberts onto a, a combat ship where he ultimately perished. I would be, you know, the rational part of my mind would be going, well, this is what he wanted. And, you know, I'm trying to effectuate what he his desires were versus no, I had a responsibility to protect him, and I failed in that responsibility, and I didn't see what could possibly happen. But that's just me. 
I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we are discussing our first superhero film, and the one that kicked off kind of the current era of cinema we're currently in, Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, and Jeff Bridges, directed by Jon Favreau. Currently available on Disney+. If you'd like to get in contact with us, again, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. <laughs>